Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Today I'm delighted to be joined once again by Adam Lawrence. Adam, great to have you on the show. Well, it's always great to be back. Thanks for having me again. So Adam is uh, one of the principals of the Boardroom Club. Uh, the Boardroom Club is a, a property uh, business support group, which meets monthly. Uh, it's quite an exclusive club. Uh, there's a bit of a waiting list to get on, on it. But if you're interested in finding out more, get in touch with Adam uh, at Adam G. Lawrence on LinkedIn. So Adam, today we're going to be talking about windfalls. So what do I do when I get a pile of cash in the bank or I know that I'm getting a, a payout? You should never spend this money until you've actually got it in your account. I should I should start the show by saying that. Um, Good advice, and, and then ideally, you know, how do you look at um, look at what's going on out there and make make good choices uh, around the use of a windfall, where uh, for either by luck, good fortune, or good decisions, or hard work over a period of time, you've accumulated a, a pile of cash where. Uh, it's unusual uh, for your your current circumstances. At what level that may may be. Now, what what I suggest we do is we talk about some of the different circumstances of windfalls, different examples. But what 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 do we what do we do in terms of assessing our options? How do we look at uh, what's out there and making good choices? Will be the ultimate aim of uh, this discussion. So, should we start with um, what? What are some examples of windfalls? Well, you've said some a whole number of really interesting things in that lead in there, Will, which I think we should probably develop a little bit before we continue. So, first one is if we were going to define a windfall, we would we would indeed include some kind of concept of proportionality. So, at eighteen years old, ten thousand pounds might be considered a a really significant windfall. If you work in a minimum wage job somewhere or an apprenticeship or, you know, a part-time job while you're at university or whatever, could make a big difference. Um, depending on where you live in the country, could be your house deposit if you preserve that well, um, your first house deposit. So, whereas when you're 60 and you've sold a business that you might have been operating for 40 years and has given you a, a significant income, um, that windfall might be, again, the same sort of multiple of the income you've been used to, but it might be a million quid or, or more, or a more, little bit more, a little bit less. Quite often, um, that sort of money changes hands at those, those points of, uh, 
of time. So some kind of proportionality has got to come into it. And in many ways, that's where the challenge lies, because there's some great stats around, for example, lottery winners who had never really thought they might win that money. Um, somebody tends to win it at some point, obviously, but the odds are tens of millions to one, if not hundreds of millions to one. And, you know, Camelot, who currently operate the UK National Lottery, are aware of this problem. You know, a high percentage of lottery winners go broke um, in a similar way that a, a, a disturbingly large percentage of professional sports people are bankrupt several years after they finish playing. Although there's probably a number of things going on there, but one of them is not necessarily cutting their cloth accordingly, not being able to parachute back down to reality um, and all the rest of it. So there is a, when, when the windfalls get very disproportionate, there's actually quite a lot of danger inherent in those circumstances for people. Um, we're not really taught financial uh, savvy at school, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, I think most of us would agree. Um, and therefore, when that windfall comes, what are we going to do with it? And there can be a, there, there are very psychological, you know, nominal psychological barriers are a big deal. A thousand pounds, ten thousand pounds, a hundred thousand pounds, a million pounds. You know, the latter has been a big psychological barrier for people for the last 50 years. Right. And over that 50 years, that million pounds does less and less and less and less and less. And if you let's say you thought, right, I'm done, I'm made, I don't need any mortgages, I don't need anything else at all. I'm going to go and buy a million pounds of property and you've never done property investment before. The first likelihood is after a year, your million pounds is going to be worth 900 grand or less. <laughs> so you, you've got to bear that in mind. And then the income falling off from that million pounds won't be something that's going to see you in a lifestyle of champagne, caviar and Ferraris, ultimately. So there's a, a word that stood out in all of that, where you're talking about the lottery winners never thinking. So it's a, so the thinking piece. And can we concentrate on that briefly? Because what, what you, what you uh, plan to do and what you focus on can either be a choice or uh, it happens a little bit by accident. And in the case of the lottery winners, in most cases, I suspect, they don't really have a, a well thought out plan. Uh, and that, you know, because it's unexpected. So when the unexpected windfall lands in your, your lap or in your bank account, um, what, what's the, um, what, what do you think the issues are uh, going on in, in terms of people's focus, their thinking? Well, because it's a disproportionate life event. And a lot of people, let's use the old grass is greener analogy, you know, I've heard and uh, corrected or argued with many people over the years who've said, you know, you talked in the lead-in about hard work and luck. And that's probably if we just cover that off quickly. Um, ultimately, those two things are not independent of each other. I often say, I do quite like the old, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I think you do have to caveat it with, if you can avoid really bad luck in life, and I'm talking, you know, significant health events, um, really random acts that only affect one in 10,000 people, et cetera, et cetera. You, you, you've got something there. So they're definitely not independent of each other. You go to the, you know, an example like Schwarzenegger, for example, you know, he, he would work out all day. He would do all the stuff he needed to do to get sponsorship. 
he would then go and do four hours of acting classes in LA, you know, every night until he was uh, casting Conan, where for those who've seen it, you know, he's, he's not great. <laughs> but the point was, people laughed at him, people told him he'd never be an actor, people did all this stuff. There was a bit of luck involved, but he made his own luck there, right, with all that hard work. And that's the same as the business owner who's going to exit. And of course, the thing for the business owner with the windfall is there is likely to have been runway. So, and also they might well have been used to earning reasonable money. So they haven't woken up one day and been slapped around the face with a surprise windfall. So it's a very different mentality that they've approached that with. And, you know, money can burn you out very, very easily. You find that you've got more bad actors around you than you thought you would have before. You find that you can't do the things you thought you might be able to do because you'd never costed them out and you'd never taken a really practical viewpoint of them. It might lead to things in your life that weren't in there before that have come in that are bad, bad, detrimental for your physical health, detrimental for your mental health. You know, some of the wealthiest people that I know, not necessarily, uh, well, actually, one of them has made his money from a windfall and it was a business sale, a very, very big one. Um, but money doesn't make them any happier. In fact, it makes them more miserable because it gives them more problems. And <clears throat> there's that very famous uh, survey. I think it's uh, Norwegian data where effectively, and this was a few years ago, but the, the concept I would expect would still hold. Once the household income got above 40,000 uh, GBP equivalent, then actually people's report on their happiness was a flat line. And in fact, after a while, it even went down a little bit. So that's the kind of wow. proof that really income income is at that level more of a hygiene factor. You know, a lot of people don't understand how hard it is when there's no money. It creates extra stresses and pressures. And that's the core of the cost of living problem in the bottom 20%, certainly. Whereas the rest of us are likely feeling, oh, I can't quite afford to go to wherever this year. I might have to sharpen the pencil and stay in England. You know, it's a real first world problem at the end of the day. Um, so the absence of income will create huge pressures and bigger problems. But once you take those hygiene factors away, the presence of more does not necessarily make you any happier. And some of that will be a lot of this is about framing and who you put around you, because if you want to go into a competitive environment of people who work for Strat and Oakmont, right, then, if they all earn a million dollars a year and you only earn 900,000, you might feel quite inadequate in that pond, which would be ridiculous in the context of what people earn, but that there is something about human nature. So this probably has more to do with mindset and framing than almost any other topic we could talk about, Will, I think, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it uh, quite commonly. So I'm, I'm based in, in London. I'm uh, involved in a rugby club. There's a, there's a number of, um, uh, of young men and, and some old, older men who you know, perhaps have stopped playing, but they're involved. And uh, a number of them would have made a packet or, or, or get, get these windfalls uh, in bonuses or particular big events. And uh, it wouldn't be unusual that there's, you know, there's millions of pounds a, as one-off uh, payments. Now, the interesting thing is, is an enormous number of these guys 
uh, end up similar to the the professional athletes, where uh, and I, I think there's a there's a level of focus to operate in a in a trading desk or uh, where there's nothing else that you can think about really for you, you know for for twelve or fourteen hours a day, you know, uh, and and the weekend is uh, either a party or a recovery mode for the the following week, and. And then suddenly, you know, uh, two million quid turns up in your bank account. Um, what what do you do with it? Well, I mean, some of that obviously is going to depend on. There's a famous story in. Um, and and these are these are you know kids in their twenties, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a well, you know what tends to happen in football? They have a swarm of IFAs and things around them, who are maybe the best people, maybe not. It's very difficult for them because, you know, traders, you would expect to be more financially sophisticated by the nature of what they do. Not always the case, to be fair, but nonetheless, you know, it comes back to the same old rules. You need to put the right people around you. Um, you need to have some sense of proportionality. You need to have your expectations managed. Some of us, the majority of people, and this is why, you know, smoke selling, whether it's in property guru courses or any of the other million arenas that it happens in, this is why it works, because people think get rich quick. They don't think Uncle Warren return of investment before return on investment, right? They're not wired that way. So the way that you wire yourself that way, one of the ways of doing it is constantly listening to me droning on about it. But, you know, that affirmation that repeat of those words is important even to me because it reminds me when I see something that's too good to be true, it probably is, right? So I need to then work out. And I've seen some deals, to be clear, that, that are too good to be true, but I've got under the skin of them, worked out why it's happening, what's happening, and I've, then, I've done the deal, you know? So it's not like everything like that is a scam, but as soon as people start mentioning I'll pay you 30% interest on your money. If you lend it to me, you're going to be quite concerned. If you can understand there's a specific situation where they need the money for three months and there's, a, and there's security and there's this and that going on, fair enough. But that's probably not the case. you know. So if you're going to get a windfall like that every year, as some of these traders do, you're going to need an even stronger mindset to be able to cope with that as and when it comes in. So I think, you know, there's a reason why the trappings of wealth exist. I've seen this a lot with friends of mine who've become expats, you know, they're distanced from their home country. They almost all of them go with a plan of coming back within five or 10 years precisely zero of them have ever come back in my experience and the reason for that is they get into the trappings of wealth where they are they're in a tax haven but the cost of being in the tax haven is nearly as much as their tax bill in the uk anyway um, and once they've got the accoutrements the network the people everything else over there it, they just stay it's hard to move back the weather's better for a start you know there's lots of reasons why that happens so there's a mentality thing around annual bonuses um, or, you know, traders are looking forward to that event and knowing they're going to get something. Um, but they need to manage their own expectations. In 
in uh, Nassim Taleb's Black Swan, because he was a, a trader for many years, he talks about uh, traders who, you know, they might have made $100 million for the bank that year. And what they'd also done was they used their bonuses to mirror the portfolio they created at work. And he talks about how fundamentally stupid that was because in 2008, when things got wiped out by a black swan, not only did they lose their job, they lost all their money as well because they were mirroring the same thing. So an element of diversification is a very, very smart idea. Um, so you put you put uh, at least um, some of the chips on red as well as black, is it? Or no. <laughs> ideally not, because that's there's no margin in that. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so what, one of the um, one of the things that uh, is like reasonably obvious um, to me when when people appear to make better choices is they're clear what they're trying to do. Uh, now they may have thought this out better, or you know, or, or, or sought better advice at, at different points. But in general, they, they they've got an idea. What are they trying to do? What's their objective? They're looking to create ongoing income, or they'd like uh, a safe place to uh, to store their money for a while. They'd like to grow their capital. Uh, they'd like to be wrap it up in a tax efficient way. And and the smarter ones manage to get all of that you know, covered off in the one investment and they've thought, you know, or, or they've sought advice about what are the future implications of, you know, how do you get extraction? How do you put it in a position to hand it on to, you know, uh, other people in the next generation who are important to you? And um, where, where things sort of go astray is often, I, I think people haven't thought it through even at that basic level. I, I totally agree with that. And if you think about some of the stuff we've discussed before, some of the stuff we discuss on the retreat as well, you know, if you want a 12 month plan, we think that's a very, very good idea. We can do that in a quite a serious level of detail. Yeah. We then want to have five year plans, 10 year plans. And when you think about retirement, as we're talking about a little bit here, we want that plan, that age, that whatever. Now, it doesn't need to be fixed and it certainly can't be in any particular detail. Like for example, I think, right, I might like to spend four months, five months a year outside of the UK because as soon as we get to October, the weather gets pretty grim and the nights are closing in. Right. And I might want to do that when my children are at university. That's the total extent of my plan at the moment, because for me, that's 15 years away. Yeah. And that's the right level of detail in my opinion. For a plan that's fifteen, it's much away. longer than I would have picked at him. But uh... <laughs> normally, people say how young I look, Will. But thank you anyway. Um, <laughs> just prolific at having children, not prolific like Boris Johnson, to be clear. <laughs> just, just prolific. Um, so, <laughs> so <clears throat> that would be an appropriate level of detail for a fifteen-year plan. As that time horizon shortens, as we all get older once a year, as we do in a formal way, but older every every second in reality, um, that then becomes more and more of a, of a reality. Now, I would say and challenge some of the, you know, re is re retirement, is it about an age and a number or, or one or the other? Yes, potentially. But obviously, I have an entrepreneurial background. 
I don't let other people tell me what to do. That's what it means, right? Pretty much. So I don't think it has to be full retirement. I don't think you have to down tools on one specific day. I don't think there has to be the gold watch or any of that nonsense. You you build the lifestyle that you want to, and there might be bloody hard work to do that, but it is it is what it is. So, you know, first of all, I'd be challenging the paradigms around what age you retire, what you do when you're retired, are you actually semi-retired, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, be, be working towards that. But this is very different for people who might have multiple windfalls like a trader, for example, versus someone who wakes up one day and has had, a, it could be, you know, an unforeseen, unfortunate death in the family that leads to an inheritance. Um, it could be a lottery win. It could be just something they never they never even knew about that, that happens. You, you know, if we talk about the context of windfalls in the corporate world at the moment, there's been a lot of chat about the windfall, a windfall tax for energy companies. And that comes back a little bit to luck and skill in that there is luck involved for them because the energy prices and the commodities underpinning all of that are having a volatile time. But there's also a lot of skill in running your business correctly, which means that everything is hedged to protect you against the downside so you can profit when there's a significant upside. So if there's a windfall tax, and it's probably be what Rishi's argument would revolve around, then it's a tax on their skill, ultimately, um, and some of the luck. Now, I'm not, I'm not actually against the windfall tax. I think it probably is a missed opportunity not to do it. Um, but that's very different. And what, where that is at the moment is I think he didn't do himself any favours. But the chief exec of Shell said the other week something like that basically amounted to we've got so much money at the moment we don't know what to do with it, <laughs> which is not, not an ideal thing to expound. I don't suppose the shareholders would have been pretty happy to hear that. But ultimately, when companies pay dividends, that's what they're doing. They're saying, look, we haven't got better projects to invest this in. We're giving, we're returning you that money in dividends. And of course, if they've got institutional investors, as Shell will have many, 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 they are reliant on regular dividends as well because they want income stream to pay out to their pension uh, scheme members, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and there's a whole, uh, like, in a corporate setting, that those windfalls, like, do you put it in a treasury account? You know, if you haven't planned in advance, there can be, you know, huge sums of money go missing in terms of opportunity cost and or lost, I should say. Absolutely, eye watering. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, how how do we we look at this? Um, you know, if, if we could get some principles or a framework uh, together, uh, we we realise that it might be uh, the day before, or it might be well in advance. Uh, in the case of a probate, uh, that there's going to be uh, a chunk of change landing and what, what might we do with it and and um, you know there's there's all sorts of different circumstances and you might have uh, no no surviving relatives uh, you may have no children you may have um, you know you may have 10 kids all of these things may change how you you view this. And as you quite rightly, you know, the 18-year-old and 60-year-old, they're different situations. But what are some principles about how to look out there to have a, um, 
at least a, a framework for thinking about how, how might I use this? And and you know, of course, you can you can save it, you can spend it, you can uh, you can invest it, which is a form of spending, I suppose. Um, yeah. So I think I think we need to make a distinction first of all between capital and income, and that's where people need to start. So when go back to the trader example ultimately they're getting rewarded very very strongly for their human capital whilst they stay in that world of like you say obsession effectively right while they while they can stay in that world their human capital earning potential is huge and that is being turned into income right they're being their assets that are being sweated themselves as people right so that then generates income and then for whatever reason, when we see those higher amounts, we think of it as capital. So what do we want and need to do with it? What's our risk profile for a start? What level of effort and in the situation you were just describing, what level of headspace have they got for investment? What level of time? What level of motivation, ultimately? Um, and that's got to come into consideration when you've got a human capital situation that's earning you a lot of money as long as that that may last versus the one-off where it, in quite commonly in these situations the people haven't got enough income and they're not earning enough income but they do have the capital so then we need to then think about capital accumulation which is effectively what the trader might be doing year on year Wealth creation, effectively, uh, we're progressing through the ranks up the ladder. And then wealth protection, capital protection, which is key. So ultimately, if we draw out, so all of that is going to depend on personal circumstances. You might feel some people, legacy is so incredibly important to them. And actually, legacy might be better give distributing some funds during one's own lifetime one for selfish reasons so you can see the difference that it makes two because the average age of someone who receives an inheritance in the uk is 61 and at 61 frankly it's reasonably late for you it to change your life even if it's a significant sum of money so they might have been better off with one tenth or one twentieth of that money when they were 25 or 30 or 35, whenever their prefrontal cortexes are properly developed and they're not going to spend it all on uh, wine, women and song or whatever, Will. Um, so that's a, a massive consideration. And then we've got to look at, you know, income creation ultimately as well from that capital and what are the requirements for that. So classic example, when people are looking at property, personal name or limited company you know comes up all the time ultimately a lot of people a really quick and dirty rule of thumb one that i quite like if you're going to spend the money every year that the property throws off then keep it in your personal name um if you're not and you're going to try and wrap it up and accumulate it then stick it in a limited company obviously that's very rough and ready but it's not a bad yardstick so there's the income that generates because you might inherit Five hundred thousand pounds in a probate situation, and then think, right? Well, that's great, but what I could really do with is fifty grand a year income. And so there's a, that ten percent number in there, which is easy to say and not easy to do. 
depending on the volatility you're willing to accept uh, on that 50 grand number, um, it might be nearly impossible to do. So we've got to consider all of those things to start with. And in fact, I probably would like to mention at this stage, one of the ways in which, you know, windfalls, we, 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 could, we could bat the definition back and forward again. But I think people sometimes don't realise they can create windfalls. Um, if you've got a property portfolio, it'd be a good example, because you might decide to liquidate it. And if you do, then you might have generated a significant amount of cash from the equity you've got built up. That's up to you. You control that windfall. You might spread that windfall over 10 or 15 years. You might have that windfall all in one go if you sell your portfolio to a portfolio buyer. Um, same goes for people who've got houses uh, that have got significant amounts of equity tied up in them. So it always shocks me how many people, and you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, because inheritance tax is a pretty nasty frozen threshold that's been there for many, 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 many years. And of course, we're getting to the stage soon where the average house price will be above the inheritance tax threshold. You know, a pretty crazy, a pretty crazy concept, but we'll be there. And because most people are using repayment loans, they will get to the, the end of their uh, the end of their mortgage and be sitting on an asset. Um, and that's why these days I'm a big fan. Uh, you'll have seen me post about it before. But I'm a big fan of considering equity release in the right situations, which had a horrific reputation pre-2008, but has been cleaned up by the SCA. And while we've got cheap debt available to people, it's an incredibly powerful way you could take money at 55 or 60 or 65 <clears throat> and you could give that to your children who are going to be in those sort of 20s, 30s age range where it will make a massive difference to them. And you're not going to create yourself <clears throat> a cash flow problem because you're not having to service the debt. You can fix the debt at a low rate. So it's an engineered windfall, um, which might be. I'd encourage people to at least consider if they're in that situation and they're listening to this, Will. So in terms of, um, so that's an example of a slow motion uh, windfall. You've accumulated a, um, uh, a, a house worth of equity, uh, shall we say, just to simplify it, uh, over a period of your, your working life or, or a, uh, a period of time. What, what, how, how do you use that? Now, the, the question I've got next is we're in volatile times and there's some fantastic uh, episodes in the back episodes, if you look these up, on volatility and, and related topics. But how, how should someone look at what's going on out there? What, what, what might be around the corner? And, and I think this, um, this is like a very common thing at the moment where... Um, because there's so many moving parts that appear to be moving uh, and oscillating at, at greater and greater rates, um, if you're an, in, you know, the average Joe average punter, uh, you can see the prices rocketing up. What's happening with the interest rates? What's going on with the economy, uh, both internationally and, and locally? What's, uh, what, what's a good framework for looking out uh, and, and what is going on out there, in your opinion? I think, you know, you can do worse than listen to the podcast that we do and read the Sunday Supplement, Will, ultimately. I mean, it depends what level of detail to which you want to get into. But I would say 
you know, what happens and what have I been talking about for 15, 16 months when it comes to secular inflation is where do the damaging, we, we've had a really, really interesting six or seven years. I think everybody would admit that. They might use another word other than interesting, but we have. So we had the referendum that created some inflation, right? Why? Because it affected the strength of the pound, right? So we're a net importer of goods in this country, significant net importer, including a lot of the food that we find in the supermarket, right? So that got more expensive. Um, I, at the time, you know, coined the term fakeflation, right? Because what inflation should be is it should be a symptom of a healthy economy. And this is one of the things that I've been saying. The problem that we've got is that inflation after the referendum, and certainly the inflation we're experiencing now, is not good, genuine, honest inflation from a roaring economy, right? We had a big drop down in COVID, Q1, Q2, 2020, record, record drop off GDP, you know, 13, 14%, whatever it was in the end. Um, and we've had a big bounce back. Now, that bounce back could have been confused with a roaring economy, but it was just a reopening bounce, right? Now we've completely stalled, but we've got this inflation that's built up because of commodity price, because of supply chains being screwed up around the world. That's not healthy inflation. That's not a symptom of a healthy economy. Hence, danger, big warning lights, right? Bigger danger when you try and tackle that fakeflation again with traditional monetary policy tools, right? Big danger. So jacking the rates up is not necessarily going to solve a lot of this. But what it's absolutely and utterly guaranteed to do is put the brakes on the economy. Problem, the economy wasn't really roaring because it's, again, productivity gains have been coming left, right, centre, and companies are becoming more efficient. They've become less efficient. They've made more money because there's been more money out there for them to make. So in context this week, Amazon down 12% yesterday, right, whatever it was. So I'm not sure where they ended the day, but they were down 12% at some point. That is a mega cap, two point whatever trillion dollar company losing more than 10% of its value in one day. Now, why? Again, this is a COVID thing that when it happens, you think you should have seen it coming. The pandemic flattered Amazon because it was this sudden huge rush. And the game's up. The whistle's been blown. The Nasdaq's down 13.5% this month. And it's down 13.5% with the worst month it's had since 2008, right? Because the game's up on these, what shares are priced in terms of future growth in revenue streams. And the models have not been accurate in the last couple of years because there's been this huge disruption. So when you've seen this huge uplift in the top six or seven stocks in the S&P, all of which, apart from one, I think are, are tech stocks, then you, you, you realise that that makes up 22% of the market, you know, it's a ridiculous amount of the S&P makes up. They've been working on false premises, a lot of these things, because that's why Netflix has taken a big bath, because it may not be able to put many more subscribers on in the long term. I'm, I'm pretty sure it will, actually, but there we go. Um so all of this stuff is happening and chickens are coming home to roost. Now, what happens in times of inflation that's particularly dangerous? Workers then go to their employers and they want more money. 
and if they don't give it to them, especially in a job market like this, they're liable to leave, right? Now, they need that money and they feel they deserve that money just in order to keep pace with the cost of living, right? So it gets very difficult for employers, especially when there's as many job vacancies as there are right now. So what does the employer do if they want to stay in business? They put their prices up. So what are we talking about? We're talking about a cyclone going upwards and inflation propagates more inflation, and that's very damaging. Historically, what are the typical endings to this sort of problem, right? Number one, recession. The best cure for high prices is high prices. And that's the warning that that, that little uh, ditty contains there, you know. Um, number two, productivity gains, which we've struggled for in the UK for the last 15 years. Now, it's really hard to strip out from the figures and the noise. Have we gained any productivity because of working from home? I would think some, but the problem is because it's been dropped on us as such a big experiment and then employee expectations have changed and we're back to the tight job market, um, that it hasn't been done efficiently. It's been done very inefficiently and the wrong factors have pushed it into being such a big consideration, right? So I can't tell you whether there has been a productivity gain of any meaningful sort, and neither can the ONS, and neither can anybody who's got the data, because the noise in the data is very difficult to strip out, and we'll only know looking backwards when we get like a, a year down the track. But what I do know is, the US economy has contracted 0.1% in Q1, which means they're halfway towards a recession. And if that doesn't, you know, if they put in a negative number for Q2, the US... Cord. So the US economy uh, contracted by 0.1% in the first quarter of this year, which means we're halfway towards a recession. Um, it only needs Q2 to be negative, to be in a technical recession. That will change all sorts of things. Now, the US are yet to put the rates up um, on their bank base, and they've now been talking about a triple rate rise at one meeting. Now, if they do that in an economy that arguably is already off the top, that's a guaranteed recession. So the, the, the bank meet, the Federal Reserve and the, and the Bank of England meetings that are upcoming over the next two weeks are phenomenally important. I mean, incredibly important. So we're going to be watching those very, very closely. Um, now, what, what a lot of this stuff changes is it changes the attitude of consumers. Consumers are already more bearish than they've been, even, even taking into account the pandemic. Everybody knows that problems are coming, right? And what does that mean? They stop consuming, they sharpen the pencils, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because growth goes away, company profits struggle, and then it, it, the cyclone stops and it starts unwinding because everybody's so miserable about what's happening. So, so let, let's, uh, let's take a, a look from today. So uh, arrears uh, at the, are at the lowest point. Mortgage arrears are at the lowest point since 2007. Again, Office of National Statistics figures. Uh, what when you you look forward to so your you, uh, there's there's a growing potential for a recession within the UK at some point over the next 12 18 months yeah yeah 
right now, interest rates are, are still comparatively low. If they were to jump up um, and property prices were uh, to, uh, I suppose, the, the brakes go on, because it, it's rocketing up at the moment. Uh, I think it was 14% year on year uh, to the end of the first quarter, I, I believe, uh, which is a which is a, a huge increase nationally, and and there's there's even bigger increases in particular sub markets. Uh, I, I was looking at a a street within a portfolio uh, that we're uh, we're getting involved with, and there were sales. This is in a terraced row of housings there were sales within the last three years of, and these are identical properties, like, you know, by and large, uh, they range between 30,000 and 80,000. Neither rhyme nor reason. Well, now, that's, yeah, that's not uncommon in some of those markets because the BMV traders operate there quite a lot, but I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Now, what the, um, what the, the question I have is, uh, you're an investor, you're sitting on a bit of cash, you've had this windfall. Uh, if you do nothing now, and it's sitting at bank rates which are near zero, uh, inflation's going up at a great rate, we're talking about headed to you know 10% at some stage over the next while, so your 100k is going to be worth the equivalent of 90. Uh, how do you how do you look forward two years? Um, are we better holding on to that money for two years? Uh, are we better putting it into something? Uh, what, what are the the frameworks for deciding um, what should we do with this money? The thing is, I think we need to be very very careful at this point, and people listening need to be careful and honest with themselves, Will, because there are certain personality types that will go out and fire the gun at the very first opportunity or even before they should. There are certain personalities. If you want to find an excuse not to invest your money in property or anything else, right, you will always find one. Just go on the internet and look for some bad news. It'll take you about 10 seconds. In any economic climate, in 2001, the Economist published a long article about why UK house prices were badly overvalued. Um, and and there was, a, there was a, a crash uh, forecast, as it yeah. was for each of the following eight years until it became that, true. This is the old, we've predicted nine of the last three recessions, right? And that's absolutely where that comes from. Um, so you, you can always find an excuse. Now, I think what people, people make some really classic mistakes again and again and again in these situations. I've stopped someone once from, for example, I was sitting in a, uh, a nice restaurant with a guy, 2016, and I said to him, what do you want? What do you want to achieve? We're talking about property investment. And he said, I want to achieve what my friends have done in Islington with flats they bought in 2011. And I said, that's jolly good. Let's go out to the car park, see where you've parked the DeLorean, and then we'll have to get the 1.21 gigawatts at 88 miles an hour in order to go back to 2011 to repeat that performance because we are not going to be able to, right? We cannot benchmark ourselves against what happened in the past, especially when we know the answer, right? This is ridiculous. So we can't do that. So 
what we need to understand is what's available now and what's the best opportunity available now. We need to understand what's the likelihood or probability of that going down. Should we be using leverage? What sort of leverage should we be using? Why is leverage magnificent? I talked a little bit about this last week, about how powerful leverage is in an inflationary environment in order to protect your real returns. Incredibly, incredibly powerful. So ultimately, they've got to understand um, what, what options are open and available now. And is delaying, it, it's so easy. People go on Facebook every day and say, you know, should I invest now or should I wait? What sort of question is that? Because ultimately, what deals are you looking at? What have you got in front of you? What work are you putting in in order to have? Do you think, are you just going to walk into the estate agents, open a checkbook? Because if you're ever going to do that, you're always going to lose money in the first 12 months, 24 months, 36 months of that investment. If you're holding it for 30 years, you might say, well, I don't care. And you might be constrained by time. You might be constrained by your risk profile. You might be constrained by the fact you only want to invest three miles from home and you live in West Hampstead. You know, it's not ideal if that's your investment mentality, but it is what it is. So it really depends on all of those things. But don't use it as an excuse to procrastinate. There are deals in every market. The best traders that I know did fantastic deals in 06 and 07, as well as 08 and 09 and 10, right? The best property traders that I know. So they, they look different, they look different, but they were still great deals. So there's always stuff out there. There's always ways to deploy it, but be realistic, manage your own expectations on your returns. Um, don't chase shiny pennies, don't chase unicorns. Um, if time is your problem, make sure you work with the right people. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, if money is your problem in that you've got a windfall, but you're then not going to refill the pot, then you need to be thinking about things that are evergreen. You need to be thinking about things that are going to last a long time. Good old-fashioned single let might be the way forward there, right? And then take that income, get, get back to it, make a 10-year plan for that property investment. So I'm going to hold that for 10 years at least, and I'm going to review it every year, and I'm going to let it tick on. And that uh, that boardroom club uh, point around looking at different time frames. I think that's a really, really key thing. Uh, I'd encourage you uh, to look up the back episodes. Uh, Rod, Rod Turner uh, came on with Adam Vickers, who's one of the uh, participants, um, and it's worth listening to for a couple of key phrases that Rod uses around. Uh, how you view investment over time. Um, and I'm not going to say what, what they were because it genuinely is worth uh, investing the time to, to look that up. I think it's called uh, the Bordering Club, uh, Rod Turner, in the back episodes. Um, so, Adam Lawrence, always a pleasure. Um, and we're, we're looking forward to the Sunday supplement, which you can you can find either via uh, Adam's LinkedIn profile or via the Partners in Property community page on Facebook. Um, highly recommended. Comes out uh, every Sunday or at least uh, at least 
50 Sundays a year. Uh, I, I think there was one on a Monday a few weeks back, but uh, uh, but but well done. So uh, thanks again, Adam Lawrence. I'm Will Mallard. This is my Property World Podcast. Thanks, Will. Cheers, mate. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.